all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's a, a bold statement that Jesus makes. It's possibly one of the biggest made in the Bible. And I want to start this morning by showing you how this part that we're seeing in Matthew's gospel is the hinge on which the whole of the story of the Bible turns direction. And so to do that, I want to start by giving you a background, an understanding, what is the story that has come before this point? And it's not, it's not just my story, it's not your story, this is God's story. That's what the story of the Bible is. It's God's story, and we're, we're honored and privileged to be a part of that, but ultimately, that's the, that's the big story that is happening through the Bible. So I'm going to try and take a portion this morning of time just to explain to you very, very briefly, hopefully, uh, the, the big story that has happened from the start to where we've got to now, uh, and then we're going to look at, so what does it mean for Jesus to say he has all authority. So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. What does God do? God creates. He brings creation into being. That's what he does. And he creates uh, life itself. He creates um, uh, the plants and the animals and the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and all creation. And the apex of his creation is the man and the woman. Mankind is, is brought in, into the world. So he creates this brilliant world. He has this creation. Then it moves on very quickly to the problem, the fall, where Satan tempts uh, Eve in the garden, and he tempts her by saying this one question. He says, did God really say? And he brings God's authority into question in man and the woman. And the fall happens, and sin comes into the world and sin breaks the creation, breaks the relationship that the creation has with the creator, with, with God. So what does God do? God sets out on a mission to redeem his creation. If you ever want to know what God cares about in this life, if you ever want to know where to pay attention, where to put your efforts in, ask yourself, is it part of God's creation? If it's part of God's creation, then God cares about it. God is on a mission to redeem his creation. So are you part of God's creation? Yes. Then you matter to God. God wants to redeem you as part of his creation. Is the environment part of God's creation? Yes. So it matters to God. He wants to redeem his creation. And so on and so forth. It goes through, through everything that is part of his creation. So he sets out on this mission. And the first thing he did, or one of the early things he does then, is he calls a man called Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your descendants, and I have chosen you to become the forefather of a nation. And this nation is going to be the first fruits of my redemption plan. I'm going to call you and I'm going to create you into a nation, and I am going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. And so that's exactly what he does. God creates the nation of Israel. They go down as a family into Egypt, and by the time they come out, they are a nation of over two million people. That's how big God's plan is. And God isn't finished with that people. He, he wants to live among that people. 
So he comes and he lives in, in their, their, their temple, which was a tabernacle at the time, a big tent basically. And he lives and he leads those people. How amazing is that? He's, he's come from the Garden of Eden where, where sin has broken the relationship with mankind and then already he comes back to live with a people on this planet because he wants to redeem his creation. And because sin is still there, he gives them the law and he gives them a means of which to... to to find forgiveness in front of him through sacrifice and, uh, and through the priests and through the law that, that he gives. So he makes them into a people. He gives them a land. He brings them into this promised land. And what he's saying is, this is the people who I'm going to bring a blessing through. He promises Abraham that he's going to bring through his people a blessing to the whole world, which we now know is, is Jesus, the Messiah. But there's a problem. This people keep forgetting who God is. Generation after generation, they forget who God is. And they turn to sin, they turn to idolatry, to worshipping other gods and other things and other created things and, and not God himself. And so the rest of the Old Testament, or a large portion of the Old Testament narrative is, is cycling around this same issue of the people forgetting God, forsaking him, sinning against him. So God lets them be taken over by their enemies and be oppressed. But God doesn't forget his people. He wants them to learn that he is their one true and only God. And so he has mercy on them. And he, he, he redeems them and he saves them and he becomes their God again and they believe in him again and follow him. And the cycle goes round and round and round. We see it in Judges and 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. You can read it through the Bible of this pattern happening. But eventually... God's patience wears out with this people. And so he allows them to be taken into exile. He gets taken out of their land. And by this point, there are actually two kingdoms. They're Israel and Judah. And they get taken out into exile. But whilst in exile, God sends prophets and visions and dreams and reminds his people that he isn't finished with his plan of redemption. He's still in the, in the working of his plan of redemption. And he still wants to use his chosen people, Israel, to bring about this redemption, this redemption plan. I want to read you a, a passage from uh, one such dream that came to a man called Daniel. And you can read about it in Daniel chapter 7. And this is just one such example of the, the foretelling of Jesus coming. But this one in particular is significant this morning because this speaks directly about the passage that we've, we're looking at that Rachel read to us this morning. So this is Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. And so Daniel has had this dream, this vision, and, and this is what he says. In my vision... At night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." So there is a foretelling of this Messiah. And then we come into this period called the intertestamental period, which is a period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a period of four or 500 years. What happens to the Jews then? 
basically they're oppressed that whole time. They're under the oppression of different people and different governments. They're under the oppression of the Persians and then the Greeks and then eventually the Romans. And all that time they're looking at these uh, prophecies and they're saying, this, this Messiah is coming. This, we've got to hold on to the fact that this Messiah is coming. And he's going to come and he's going to destroy these people who've oppressed us all these years. That was how they had interpreted who Jesus was going to be, who this Messiah was going to be. That they were going to come and wipe out the Gentiles and there was going to be this everlasting kingdom that was headed up by Israel. And, and that, was going, that was what was going to happen. They were looking back to the age-old days of, of the former glories of Israel with King David and they wanted to see that come back. But that wasn't God's plan. And so enters Jesus and in, in particular we're looking at Matthew's Gospel. And what is the agenda of Matthew's gospel? Matthew is, is, writing, is believed to be writing predominantly to Jews. And the Jews are interested, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that has been foretold that will be a blessing out of the people of Israel, which will restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory? That's what they want to know. And the answer is a resounding yes and a resounding no. Jesus is the Messiah, but not the Messiah that they believed he would be, a very different Messiah. And so we've seen, as we've traveled through Matthew, this story of Jesus coming and and what he's taught and, and the works that he's done. And then we've seen at Easter that he died on the cross. And dying on the cross is a big issue for the Jews. It's a stumbling block for them. Because the cross, crucifixion, uh, was, was deemed to be one of the, not only the brutalist ways to die, but one of the most socially low ways to die. You see, crucifixion, ro- the Romans reserved crucifixion for foreigners, for slaves, and for the lowest criminals that existed. If you were a Roman citizen, by law, you couldn't be crucified. You couldn't be sentenced to death by crucifixion. That was, that was the law they had. So they reserved it for foreigners and people who they had oppressed. And so this idea for the Jews that this Messiah who was going to come in all his glory and all his power and restore Israel should die at the hand of the Romans on a cross was, was impossible to comprehend, was, was beyond what they could have imagined and was, was difficult to swallow. I wonder, do you and I, do we, do we have expectations on Jesus? Do we think that he's going to be someone that actually he's not? Often when there is a, a mismatch between what we think Jesus should be doing or, and who he is and, and who he actually is and what he actually does, we're, we're in the wrong there. And we need to realign ourselves to who, who Jesus is. So the crucifixion happened and he died. But then we come to the resurrection and this is where we find, this, uh, uh, find ourselves today. This, at least in Matthew's gospel, is the first time the, that the 11 disciples have seen Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior. It happens differently in other gospels, but in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time. And so he comes and he gives this statement directly referring to that passage I read to you from Daniel chapter 7. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What he's saying is, I am God's son, the Christ, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life itself. This was an outrageously large statement for Jesus 
to make. It was massive. And so we have some questions to ask this morning. We get to ask, how can Jesus claim to have all authority? Where is that claim based? Why, why is he able to say that? And secondly, and perhaps, perhaps as importantly, what should our response be? How should we respond to that? We measure authority, don't we, in many different ways. We measure authority in many different ways. And in Matthew's time, when he wrote this gospel, I think there were predominantly three ways that authority was measured. In wealth, if you were the wealthy in that society, then you were probably in authority over the poor. You probably had servants and slaves. You you were in authority. Strength. The Romans had authority because they were the strongest people of the time. They had the strongest army, so they had authority. Social status. The people who were uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people of high social ranking in the Jewish order uh, were in authority over other people. So on the surface, when you compare Jesus to those three criteria, you might say, well, he doesn't really match up very well. He didn't have a lot of wealth, Uh, he didn't have an army behind him, and uh, he he didn't have much social status. We found from uh, what Graham said last week, he wasn't popular with the the high elite of of the Jewish culture. So on on the surface, Jesus doesn't stack up very well. Can we have that, um, that picture up that I... Thank you. Now, I'm not, I'm not very into art, I have to say. I can appreciate a well-painted painting, but that's about as far as it goes for me. But this, this painting uh, was described to me um, on the radio a couple of months ago. And I wanted to share it with you this morning, and I'll try and explain how it was explained to me. Um, this is a painting depicting uh, the scene where Jesus is in front of the high priest. Uh, so he's been brought in front of the high priest and he's uh, being accused of blasphemy and he's going to be sentenced to death on the cross. And the guy sitting down is the high priest and, and Jesus is standing up. And the way it was explained to me was this. Purple, the color purple, or the robes that were purple, was uh, significant. It was a kingly sort of color because purple was very rare. It was very exotic as a color. Uh, and so it was, it was deemed only for royalty and only for kings and only for people of high authority. And so the, the person who painted this picture has put the, the high priest in this purple robe, very ornate robe, and Jesus is wearing this, this white poor man's uh, shirt on top. And so on the surface, we see that the, 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 the priests and the high priests and the, uh, the people of authority in the Jewish culture had all the authority and all the power, and Jesus was just this humble man who, who didn't have any authority. But as you look at the painting, you see that underneath the truth comes out. Underneath, the high priest is wearing this white shirt, and underneath, Jesus is wearing this purple robe, signifying the fact that actually the high priest's authority is only limited. It's not real. It's not true authority, and yet Jesus has true authority and true power. Thank you, you can can take that down. The point is this, that those with true authority never need to justify it with words because it is self-evident in their lives. 
Those with true authority never need to justify it with words because it's self-evident in their lives. Jesus had all authority and he didn't need to justify it. Why? Because Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He is alive. He resurrected. His resurrection is the center point of the whole story of the Bible. His resurrection vindicates every, everything he claimed to be and everything he claimed to teach and do. We worship a living God, a living Christ, one that can bring us back into relationship with God. That is the good news. That is, that is the power of the resurrection. And it's not just the end point of the story of this gospel, it's the end point of the story, or it's the, 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 the main climax of the story of, of God's story of redemption for his creation. Paul sums it up like this in Corinthians. He says, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to make this side point. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you uh, don't have a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're questioning, well, did Jesus really exist? Does that story that I've just relayed quickly to you now, did that really happen? Is that really the case? One of the most important aspects of the Christian faith is that it stands up to intellectual scrutiny. That many people, far brighter than myself, and far brighter than many other people, have come to faith in Jesus because actually when you look at the facts and you look at what, we, what you see, it stands up to intellectual scrutiny. And the evidence for the Bible and what is said in the Bible and what Jesus said and did stands up to that scrutiny. That's really important. And in particular, the question is this, did the resurrection happen? Everything hangs on that question on our faith. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we're wasting our time because worshipping a dead God doesn't save anyone. But the resurrection did happen, and I can say that with confidence and faith because not only do I have a relationship with God, and that's real, and I've experienced that, and I have testimony of that, but it also stands up to intellectual scrutiny, that many are the man and the woman who've written books with the aim of disproving this Christianity malarkey, only to come to faith themselves when they've examined the evidence. So I would challenge you this morning that if that's you, go away, look at the evidence, and make your own conclusion from it. But let's work on the basis that what I've said is right. Jesus is the Messiah. He is risen. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. What should our response be to that this morning? We get to choose how we respond to Jesus. And I've written down a number of options. There might be more, but these are the ones that I pull out of Scripture particularly. One, we can ignore him and we can pretend that it didn't happen. And I'm not going to elaborate too much on that because I know Graham spent time on that last week. We can ignore, just like the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the high priest did, they, they stuck their head in the sand and they said, no, nope, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. He wasn't the Messiah. Uh, it, that isn't true. And you can do that. And you'd probably get some support for that point of view as well. The world will probably say, yeah, good on you. Well done. That's the right way to go. 
but truth is truth. If Jesus is the Messiah, you not believing in him will not change that fact. Jesus is still the Messiah. He still has all authority. Number two, you can do the age-old question, did God really say? Did God really say? The first question in the Bible, and who was it asked by? Satan. Did God really say? We can question Jesus' words and his teachings, his very authority. We can question them in, in our lives. We can say, did Jesus really say, forgive or you won't be forgiven? Did he say, hating another is as sinful as murder? Did he say, slander and gossip is a sin? Did he really say, pray simply, not extravagantly, for show and, and, and in public? Well, you know, we can ask questions like, we can sound intelligent and say, what does it say in the Greek? Does forgiveness in the Greek really mean forgiveness? We can question everything that Jesus said. Number three, we could doubt and hesitate. What do the disciples do when they, when they come and they see Jesus? It says, um, verse 16 and 17, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. These were the, the men who had spent best part of three years with Jesus. They knew him, and yet even they, when they saw Jesus, they doubted. They hesitated. I'm guilty of that. Do we, do we hesitate? Do we doubt who Jesus is? Do we, do we doubt Jesus has the authority to calm the storms in our lives? Do we doubt that Jesus has authority to lead us in life? So we can... We can ignore him. We can pretend it didn't happen. We can question what he says, question his authority. We can doubt and hesitate. Or we can worship. That's what the disciples and disciples did. And in fact, if you read a bit bit earlier in Matthew 28, that's what the women did. They didn't hesitate. They came and they worshipped Jesus. In fact, when you look at it, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he has all authority in heaven and earth, That is the right, the only right response when we come before Jesus. It's to live our lives in worship to him. I found this quote from uh, Joyce Meyer. It says, instead of being critical of people in authority over you and envious of their position, be happy you're not responsible for everything they have to do. Instead of piling on complaints, thank them for what they do. Overwhelm them with encouragement and appreciation. I put it to you this morning that you and I will never have to carry the same burden that Jesus had to carry on that cross. We never have to carry the same level of responsibility that he had to carry. So it is right and proper that he has all authority and that we come to him in worship. But what does a worshipful lifestyle look like? You can worship in many different settings here, when we come together as a body in church on Sunday, in our workplace, in our home, at school, at university. We can worship in a number of different settings. So it's not about where you are. You can worship worship with different attitudes in your life, with praise and thankfulness and selflessness. And there's lots of things that make up our worship. But I think at its heart, worship comes down to one word, obedience. 
God wants our obedience. I wonder if I can quickly find it, read you a psalm, or read you part of a psalm. This is Psalm 40, uh, verses 6 to 8. And this is David writing this psalm, but if you read in Hebrews 10, you'll see that this is actually, again, a foretelling of Jesus. And this is what he wrote. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. So David's writing about a foretelling of Jesus. It's more than sacrifice worship is. Worship is obedience to God, wanting to do what he calls us to do, wanting to do what he says. Obedience is at the heart of true worship. So, not sure about who Jesus is, not sure whether he's the Messiah, not sure whether everything said in this book is true or, 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 or that, G, that God's big story of redemption is true. I challenge you to go and find out. Go and look at the evidence. Go and see what's said. And you come to your own conclusion. I've come to mine, and I say it's true. But if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has all authority in heaven and earth, how will you choose to live out in the light of that? Worship is the right response. A worshipful lifestyle based on obedience, not ignoring, not questioning his words, but living in obedience and living out a worshipful lifestyle. 